Oh, good. Lots of newcomers. Great. Welcome. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you a newcomer if you have 11 months of sobriety. I know that hurts. You don't think of yourself as a newcomer. <laughs> this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. If you, if you don't hear anything else this whole weekend, you know, I, I hope, and I know every, every speaker, you'll hear it. it, it you know, it, my life is so much better than I ever dreamed it could be. And um, I had no idea when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that that would happen. I came here because I couldn't stop drinking. And I couldn't stand the way I was living one more second. And, and I came here without any particular hope that anything magical was going to happen. But uh, I had no better idea, thank goodness. And, uh, and so I came here and I got sober. My life has changed beyond my wildest imagination. Uh, I started to say I, I got drunk the first time when I was 13. And, um, and I, I thought I was doing social drinking here. But um, this is my first drink. I, I got drunk. I, I went to a party. They were drinking. Uh, rum and coke as it happened and I took a drink and tried to act like I'd been drinking all my life. I'm 13, you know, <laughs> like, and I looked like I was about nine, I think, and, and I drank, I don't know how much rum and coke, ho however much it took and then some, which is how I drank until I got here. And, um, and the magic happened for me that I assume happened for you if you're uh, in this room and that is that it changed how I felt. Uh, going into that party and in fact up until that point, it, at all times, I felt um, shy and awkward and ill at ease. It seemed like you all had some um, ability to talk to each other, to do social chit-chat stuff that I, it's beyond me. And uh, I drank that rum and coke and it, and it went away. I felt totally relaxed. I felt really comfortable, more than comfortable, you might say. And I was able to talk to people and made people laugh and uh, I remember I got up and danced and, and did not feel, um, you know, awkward or embarrassed about that. I felt like I was the best dancer on the floor. I don't know if I doubt very much that I was, but I felt like I was. And, and uh, it, was, it was really magical uh, how it made me feel. Now, I drank too much. I blacked out. I passed out. And I woke up in bed the next morning with a Marine that I didn't know, which was quite a bit more than I'd meant to do that night. Um, <laughs> You know, I was 13 years old, and the girls in my crowd were not behaving this way, and, um, and I felt bad the next day. I felt um, ashamed and guilty and embarrassed, and I was terrified that I'd get pregnant. And, you know, any bad feeling you might imagine a 13-year-old girl would have under those circumstances, I had those bad feelings. And yet, I drank again at the very next possible opportunity without a second thought. I was apparently willing to pay the price to drink from the gate. Now, I certainly didn't think any of that through, you know, at the time. If it sounds, as I'm telling my story here, if it sounds like I had great insight into my life, believe me, I didn't have it at the time. Uh, any kind of insight that I may have to, to how I was living my life came long after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I actually started having a little insight into my life when I started sponsoring other women and seeing myself, you know, in them. Anyway, I... Um, from that first drunk, I uh, essentially drank at every possible opportunity until I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, for a while, was a periodic because I was 13 years old. I did not have access to alcohol every day. But, you know, we're very resourceful people. Now, I don't remember seeking this information out. But somehow I became possessed of the knowledge of the people who drank, the one uh, liquor store in Newport Beach where I grew up that would sell to minors out the back door. 
you know, I just, my life changed and, and began to revolve around, uh, around alcohol. Up until that first night that I drank, I was a straight-A student. I went to church on Sundays. I was very involved in a church youth group, and I did those things because I wanted to. They were important to me. And within six months after that uh, first drunk, my grades had dropped drastically. I'd uh, dropped out of that youth group, only went to church when my parents demanded it. My life had changed as a result of alcohol, and, and I, um, I didn't see it happening. I, um, when I drink, I behave badly. Uh, I think of myself as a friendly girl. <laughs> Sounds a lot nicer than some of the other terms that you might use. <laughs> and so I developed this reputation in high school for being friendly. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's not the reputation I'd hoped for. And uh, I knew that people were talking about me, and, and it was embarrassing and, and humiliating. But I don't ever remember thinking, you know, if I didn't drink, maybe I wouldn't behave that way. And, you know, I, never, I don't ever remember thinking that. I worried a lot about what you were thinking about me, but I, I don't remember thinking that I should stop drinking so that I wouldn't maybe behave that way. Um, my parents sent me away. To, my grades were constantly, you know, all this time dropping. My parents sent me away to boarding school for my last two years of high school because they were very concerned about my grades, and rightly so. And, um, and I was actually sort of relieved um, because it was an all-girls school, and... Um, it, it's, it was like I got a breather there, you know. I was a very structured. <laughs> that didn't come out quite the way I meant it. <laughs> Whew. Um, hmm. Anyway, um, you know, I brought my grade. It was a very structured all-girls school. I, I um, brought my grades up. I think alcoholics, when they're applying themselves to whatever they're doing, work or school or whatever, when they're actually applying themselves, work harder than anybody. The problem, of course, is that we don't work, we don't apply ourselves very often. But when I was in boarding school, I did um, because there were really no distractions at all. It was very hard to drink there, and there were no boys. And so I, I studied hard, and I brought my grades up and graduated successfully. And I started going to a local college, and um, I got married uh, at the end of that year, that first year of college, I um, got married to this guy because he asked. <laughs> I would so love to give you a better reason than that, but there simply is not. I, I just, we met um, at the Rendezvous Ballroom in Newport Beach. Surfing music, this really dates me. Surfing music was the big deal then in, in um the Rendezvous Ballroom had uh, Dick Dale and the, the Dale Tones, for anybody who followed this music. <laughs> Dates you, too, if you know who I'm talking about. Um, they played there, and, and they didn't actually serve alcohol there, but, you know, my husband-to-be would pick me up at my parents. I was living with my parents. He would pick me up at my parents' house. Uh, we would go sit in the car and drink beer. Go in, and You would go in the ballroom and get your hand stamped so you could go out in the parking lot and drink some more. And, and while you're in the ballroom itself, the music is so loud, you cannot possibly have a conversation with anybody. I mean, it's just music, and you're dancing, and, or, you're, or we're sitting in the car drinking. When he asked me to marry him after, I don't know, six or seven months of this, I remember thinking that this was great. We had so much in common. <laughs> I, honest to God, don't think we ever had a full conversation, you know? Uh, so now we plan this big church wedding, and um, I had these sort of little doubts as the, as the day was drawing near. You know, I read a lot of books, <clears throat> and in books, brides-to-be seemed to feel things that I didn't seem to be feeling. 
and that sort of concerned me. But I, I and I thought about that a lot. But I thought that I just didn't have that gene or whatever it was. I mean, this was a perfectly nice fellow, and he certainly seemed to like me. And there was just didn't seem to be any good reason not. To, I, I can't even believe it, as I say this out loud that I could be thinking this way. But this is what I was thinking. And so I got married. And I remember walking down the aisle on my dad's arm thinking, you know, this is probably a mistake. But I, but I walked right down there and said, I do. It was a mistake. Uh, we were married, as it turned out, for six months only. Um, we might have actually been married longer, but other things intervened. We were married about five months. And uh, my brother, I had one brother growing up who was three years older than me, and he was in the Navy at the time. And he um, was injured in an explosion aboard his ship, which happened to be in Japan at the time. And my mother got a telegram from the Navy Department or whoever sends these telegrams and saying that he was very badly injured. He was put in the hospital in Japan. Now, I adored my brother. He was totally my hero. And so I started sending him cards every day to this hospital. And um, sometimes two and three cards a day. I, I would you know, go to the card shops and try to find the funniest cards I could to send to him to cheer him up. By now he was alone there. His ship had sailed, so now he's in a hospital in Japan, doesn't speak the language, you know, it's a terrible situation. And um, so I'm sending these cards off every day. About a month went by, and my uh, mother got an, another telegram saying that my brother's condition was enough improved that they thought they were going to be able to ship him back to the States, that he would still have be in the hospital and have a long recovery. But... Um, you know, it meant he'd be in San Diego or somewhere and we'd be able to see him. So we were very excited about that, kind of celebrated that good news. And right around the time we got that phone call, I had sent another of these many, many cards I had been sending. And this one said on the front, I heard you were ailing, but not to worry. And on the inside, it said, only the good die young. I sent it and he died. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't have felt worse if I'd killed him myself. I really couldn't. I couldn't believe that I'd sent such a stupid card. I just couldn't believe it. I remembered praying that the card didn't get there in time, that mail being what it is, that please, God, let him have died before that stupid card got there. Um, a couple of weeks went by, and his trunk of belongings got shipped back to my mother, and I remember the day she opened that up. The card was in there. It had been opened. I took it when nobody was looking. I went in the bathroom, and I tore it up in little pieces and flushed it down the toilet, and I just cried and cried and cried. Now, I tell you that story because I never told it to anybody. That happened when I was eight, 19 years old. I never told it to anybody until I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 30 and did an inventory because I couldn't. I felt so ashamed of what I had done. Now, I know standing here today from the perspective of being sober a good number of years and working these steps that my brother certainly knew that I loved him, and you know, but I had no tools for living, none. And I certainly could not talk to anybody about any of the feelings I was having. And so it became one more thing, uh, one more secret that I was carrying around. I remember a few years after that, my mother, who was by now very concerned about me, had uh, offered to send me to a psychiatrist. She said, I'm very concerned about you. I will be happy to pay for it if you will go. And I, by then, knew that something was terribly wrong with me, and I was more than willing to go. I did, I did not have a cavalier attitude about it. I saw it as an opportunity to maybe get some help, and I went to this guy every Tuesday for, I think, the better part of a year and never told him anything. I sat in his office, and I would think to myself, I should probably tell, that, tell him this story about my brother and that card and how I feel about that, or I should tell him about the things that were 
going on in my house when I was growing up with my stepfather that shouldn't have been going on, but I never did. I couldn't. I would sit there and talk about, like, nothing topics, you know, and I would leave his office, and I would feel worse than when I had gone in. And the first thing I would do, I remember his, his office was on Hollywood Boulevard. I'd go right around the corner and and stop at the first bar and have a drink because I'd feel so sort of stressed and upset from having sat there thinking about these things and not talking about them. And so essentially I wasted my mother's money for, for a year. Um, I, I have nothing against psychiatry. I think they probably do wonderful things, um, but I... I think it's hard for um, psychiatrists to work with practicing alcoholics because we're, we seem to be incapable of telling the truth about anything. And, and really, if you're going to get some help, I think you've got to give them a little input. <laughs> but anyway, um, and so it went. So now my brother has died. I am completely um, beyond distraught. I cannot stop crying. My poor husband has no idea to help, how to help me. We're, we're 19 years old. We might as well have been 12 for all the maturity that was going on in our house. And he said to me um, one day, you know, I don't know how to help you get over the grief about your brother's death. Maybe you should go stay with your mother for a while and she could help you um, get through this because I just don't know how to help you. And, and he was really trying to help me. He was not trying to get rid of me. He, he wanted to help me. And I said, okay. And I went to my mother's and I never lived another day with him. I divorced him after I'd been at my mother's for a while. Now, this poor guy didn't quite know what had happened there. You know, uh, he's trying to help me, and now I'm not even taking his calls. And and now he's served with divorce papers. This is um, when I got sober. It occurred to me that this is clearly somebody to whom I owed amends. You know, uh, <laughs> I got divorced when I guess I was 19 when I got divorced. I got sober when I was 30, and I hadn't seen him in. I hadn't seen him since I divorced him, and um, I was sober about, I don't know, maybe five or six months, and I ran into him, and I thought, wow, this is great. I'm sober in AA. God dumps him right in my path. Here's a real opportunity to make amends. And my next thought was, you know, I'm not sober all that long, and I'm not actually to that step yet. <laughs> and I let the opportunity pass by. Uh, that was um, 31 years ago, and I haven't seen him from that day to this. I always like to tell that story when I tell it. It sounds funny, but it's not funny. You know, um, that's an opportunity to make amends that I let pass by. I hope God gives me another shot at it. You know, I'd really like to make that right, um, or as right as I possibly can. Um, it's my hearty recommendation if oppor- opportunities to make amends present themselves that you do it. You know, I sure wish I'd done that one. Anyway, um, so I got divorced and I. I uh, moved up to L.A., which was like 50 miles from where I was living, and got a job in an apartment. I was 19 years old, and I um, got a job at a, as a secretary at a trucking company, and I started drinking with these truck drivers. And I got drunk every single night. Uh, I behaved there exactly the way I'd behaved in high school, which is to say, before that job was through, I knew most of those truck drivers in the biblical sense. And uh, I developed essentially the same reputation there that I'd had in high school. Uh, I remember one day being at work, and um, my desk was in the warehouse building, and my desk was like here, and there was sort of a picture window to my right that looked out on the loading dock. And I was typing, and I sort of felt somebody looking at me there, and I glanced out of the corner of my eye, and there were three or four guys standing on the loading dock. I, I couldn't hear them because the glass was there, but I could see them. And they were looking at me, and they were talking and laughing, and it was humiliating. It was really humiliating. But I acted like I hadn't seen them. I turned to my 
typewriter and tried to pretend like I hadn't seen him. And when I decently could, I got up and went to the bathroom and cried because I felt so humiliated. And yet that night when I got off work, I went down to the bowling alley where they all hung out, and I got drunk, and I took somebody home with me because that's what I do when I drink. I don't mean to be this kind of a woman, but it's what I do, you know. Um, my father uh, was vice president of that trucking company. Uh, my parents had been divorced when I was really young, and um, when I had got divorced from my husband, I had asked my dad for a job, and, and I remember he said, you know, I'm kind of reluctant to hire a family member. <laughs> he should have listened. Um, but he agreed to give me a, it's hard when you're young and you, you never really had a job. It was, this was like my first real job, and so he agreed to give me a job for a year so I could have something to put on my resume. And I actually wound, it was a good job. I, I was grateful for it, but I wound up leaving before the year was out because I couldn't go in there anymore. I, and that is how I behaved on jobs until I got sober. I could stay just about a year on a job. I would get the job. Now I'm new on the job, so I'm kind of nervous. So I keep my drinking separate for a while. You know, I, I work real hard. Again, as I said earlier, you know, I think when we're working, we, we do work hard. And so I'd work real hard, and they'd be impressed and tell me how a couple months would go by, and they'd tell me how glad they were I was there, and then I'd relax. <laughs> and then I'm drinking at lunchtime, and I'm going out after work with the boss or the clients or the coworkers, and then I'm sleeping with them or their spouses, and then it gets to be a huge big mess, and eventually I have to leave because I've created such havoc here. I've quit jobs after office Christmas parties without going back to clean out my desk <laughs> because I knew that I actually drank in blackouts a lot, and I'm grateful for it. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you remember some stuff, and um, here's how I drink. I went out with my boss and some coworkers one night. Um, maybe eight or ten of us were in this group of people, and we were bar hopping around downtown L.A., and we were all drunk. But apparently I was drunker than the rest of them because when we wound up in the strip joint, I was the only one who auditioned for a job. <laughs> now, I know if you're an alcoholic of my type, you're going to understand how this happened. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> we were sitting at this bar. We were sitting at this strip club. The stage is like here. We were sitting at this round table directly in front of the stage. I had excused myself to go to the ladies' room, which was down the hall, sort of behind the stage. I, my memory is a little hazy on this, but I do recall bumping into the owner or the manager or whatever he was of the bar, and I vaguely recall making some derogatory remarks about the caliber of his entertainment out there. <laughs> And you know how this went, and it, something to the effect of if I thought I was such hot stuff, which apparently I did think that. <laughs> so remember, a moment ago I was sitting at the table with my boss and some coworkers, essentially dressed as I am now. And now, mom only moments later, I am on the stage dressed in essentially nothing. And there was that moment when my boss's eye and mine met. You know, when he realized who that was up there, it was uh, it was a moment. I can see I can see the look in his face to this day. I, I doubt I will ever forget it. Um, that actually began what I like to call my show business career. And, uh, I uh, now I'm a nice girl from Newport Beach and. Nice girls from Newport Beach do not work as strippers, and, and so I got a job as a go-go dancer. I, I cannot tell you why I thought this was a cut above stripping, but I did think that. It's not, but I somehow convinced myself that it was. And so I got this. People actually paid me to dance uh, in their bars. Uh, I'm not a particularly good dancer. Uh, this was kind of at the height of 
popularity of go-go dancing. All the really nice clubs on Sunset Strip had go-go dancers. I did not work there. I worked in terrible. The first place I actually got paid to dance was a, I, I'm the only person I ever met in there who spoke English. Um, then I moved uptown to a place where they spoke English, and uh, and I actually met the man who was to become my second husband there. Uh, he was a customer and somebody who clearly recognized talent. And he was. Um, possibly the most unsuitable man in the state of California for me. And so, of course, we moved right in together and then um, got married. Now, this second marriage was not quite as fancy as the first. We went to Las Vegas. Um, I understand there's some nice chapels in Vegas where you can get married that are kind of lovely. You can even get married by an Elvis impersonator if you want. We didn't do any of that. We went to the courthouse. Um, it was a Sunday. What they did is they... Um, you went in and filled out your paperwork, and then they said, you know, it'll be about an hour, hour and a half wait. You can either sit in, they had an open courtroom, you can sit in the courtroom where there's other couples waiting, and um, when there's, you know, so many couples, 30 couples, I think, or something, then they call the judge, and he comes over, and he marries the couples in his bedroom slippers, as it turned out. And um, so we had some time. So first we went in the courtroom, and we were sitting there, and I remember we were looking around at these other couples, and and making comments to each other about how pathetic these people were, and, you know, not really getting that there we were. And, uh, and, and then we thought, you know, a cocktail might be nice. And so now you can get a cocktail. You can walk in any casino, and they'll just bring you a cocktail for free, you know, if you're gambling. So we went to a liquor store, and we bought a half pint. We sat in the car and drank it, and then um, went and got married by this guy in his bedroom slippers. And, and so now we're married, but, you know, I... Um, I'm an alcoholic, and I, I don't stop drinking, and I don't, because I'm drinking, I, I'm incapable of changing how I live my life, and so I'm still essentially behaving like I'm single, and, and you can well imagine that um, I was creating a whole set of problems in my marriage that um, made it really difficult. Uh, we had a, just a terrible, some terrible years there, and um, there was a little bit of violence in that house, and now I, I always kind of hate to say this because it gets misunderstood. I, I don't ever, ever, ever think there's um, justification for a man to hit a woman. But I'll tell you what, when I got sober and started acting differently, the violence in my house stopped. So I just put that out there for all the victims in the room who think that life has dealt you a dirty deal. You know, I, the realization I had to come to is um, life didn't deal me a dirty deal. You know, I played the cards. I, I picked the cards. My husband laughs at me because I'm like the worst gambler in the world. If I have two pair, man, I think I'm onto something, you know, and I'm betting the farm, and, and that, you know, that's pretty much how I live my life. And so, um, you know, I... It's kind of a it's kind of a rude awakening when you're sober. Well, when you realize, and my husband says it a lot when he talks. You know, my life is my fault. You know, and and that's actually good news in a way because if it's your fault, um, there's no hope for me. If if my life is your fault, if I really am a victim of horrible circumstances, then what's the use? I might as well just kill myself today. But but the fact of the matter is, I can change. I can do something about this, and, and that really is, as it turns out, good news. It doesn't feel like good news when you first hear it, but it is. Anyway, I um, so now we're married, and we're having all these problems, and um, you know, life was just uh, it was bad. I started drinking at home, 
And um, and I spent the last I don't know how many time, how many years I, I really was in in and out of blackouts I don't even know for sure the order that things happened you know but stuff happened and and um, I, and I know that for the last however many years I spent pretty much drinking in a rocking chair in my living room in a purple flannel bathrobe my husband was a gambler and he was at the racetrack a lot at night which was just fine with me uh, I I um, by now I sort of preferred it when he was gone when he was there. It seemed like sort of a lot of work. Uh, I would have to, for example, go in the kitchen and mix a drink. And scotch is my drink of choice, although I will drink anything. In fact, one year, my, my husband was a chef. And so at Christmas time, uh, vendors would give him, like, bottles of booze, you know, as, as gifts. And he would bring them home. One year, he brought home, I can't remember now what it was called, but he brought home this bottle of some terrible kind of brandy. And... Um, we had a friend over who, in retrospect, was an alcoholic, um, and so we were the three of us were there, and we drank this brandy, whatever it was. And then Eddie, this guy, called the next day, and he said, "Oh my God, that's the worst stuff I ever drank. I had diarrhea all night. It was just awful." Now it did the same thing to me, but I started buying that stuff because I knew that when Eddie came over, he wouldn't drink it, and that's where I was with my drinking. You know, I, I don't think that's social drinking. Um, anyway. Uh, so I turned into one of these people who uh, pretty much, I always worked, always had a job to go to. Everybody knows alcoholics don't have jobs, and so that the jobs got real important there. Uh, they also got real small. Uh, I, I peaked in my career at about age 23, and then it started tapering off. At 23, I was a legal secretary, really going places, you know. And then at um, 30, when I got sober, my last job was um, for a YMCA. My job was if you were a member of that Y and you came in to pay your dues, I'm the person who wrote you the receipt. I was barely hanging on to that job, too, I'll tell you. It was hard. It's really hard. The hardest thing about that job is people in the afternoons, they bring their children to the Y. You know, kids make a lot of noise. And when you're feeling sick and hungover, it's just, it's just I could hardly bear it. I have memories of several times standing in the middle of that lobby screaming at everybody to shut up. I don't think that's how people want their children to be treated when they drop them off at the Y after school. I mean, I could be wrong, but, you know, it was it was not a good good job for me. Anyway, um, I tried not to drink during the day by now, by the time I'm on that last job, because I know if I drink during the day, one of two things is going to happen. I'm either not going to go back to work, not especially good, or I am going to go back to work, not especially good. I remember one day um, I had a friend, that, a girlfriend that worked there who drank quite a bit. I keep expecting to see her in a meeting. Uh, and we had gone out to drink at lunch. And, and as we were going back to the office, we had, it was just around the corner from our office. We'd walk back, and she said, you know, Pat, I think you're too drunk to go back to work. I think you need to go home. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. And I, she walked me to my car. And I remember I was in the car, and I was trying to get the key and the you know, and the thing there, and I couldn't, and I remember she was standing there going, you can do it. This is my dearest friend. She's sending me off to die on the freeway. Finally got that key in there, and obviously I made it home. But um, So I tried not to drink at lunchtime. I really did. Uh, assuming that I got through lunch without drinking, I would get off work at 5 o'clock. I would go home. I, I can just remember this as clear as can be. I would open the front door of my apartment, put my keys and my purse on the table, walk directly into the kitchen, pick up a bottle of scotch, and have a swallow. Now I'm okay. Now I can, you know, take my clothes off, put on my bathrobe, 
get comfortable and settle in for an evening of drinking. Once I got that first drink, I'm, you know, it's, it's going to be okay now. Um, I dealt with uh, the whoever introduced me made reference to the uh, fact that I, you know, often had my utilities turned off and and so on. But I never did bounce a check at Bottle and Keg Liquor. Bottle and Keg Liquor d- delivered, and I um, would call them. And th- you know, I wrote that check for years. I don't remember now how much the check was, but I remembered it for at least 20 years of my sobriety because it was the same amount every single night. A bottle of scotch, two packs of cigarettes, and a tip for the delivery guy. It's all, it's all I ever bought from there. I was such a good customer that sometimes when I called the liquor store, by the time they got there, I might already be passed out. They would actually leave the bag on my porch because they knew that I would run down in the morning and give them a check, which, of course, I always did. Um, and uh, as I said, my husband was at the racetrack a lot at night, and that was just fine. You know, it was just fine. With, I, I never did kind of finish that story, I don't think. When my husband was there, I felt obliged to make the drinking look different. Um, he drank. I, mean, I never married somebody who didn't drink, but he didn't drink like I did. And, and so I would mix a drink in the, like, scotch and water. Now, there's, like, a right color that a drink should be, you know, not too dark. I, I'm not real clear on exactly, but so that was sort of a dilemma. Now I've got the drink, and now I'm out in the living room, and I'm drinking this drink. Now, there's some sort of reasonable period of time that a drink ought to last. I'm really not familiar with Yeah, exactly. And so that's really a dilemma. You know, when he was gone at the track, I would just take the bottle and put it on the table by where I sat. Now, I don't want you to think I'm just some kind of a common drunk. I used a glass, but, but I didn't bother with ice and water and all that good stuff. I'd play those sad records over and over again. My own personal all-time favorite was Ray Charles' Born to Lose. That is a great, great song to drink and feel sorry for yourself, too, you know. Sometimes I'd call people on the phone. You can hear the Al-Anons murmuring. You got those calls, didn't you? Always somebody completely inappropriate. In my case, it was like boyfriends I had when I was 12. Uh, I I wonder what Danny's doing now. And so, of course, I have no idea where Danny might be living. So I wake up 30 other people to find him. And I'm sure he was just thrilled to hear from me when I finally did catch up to him. I hated myself. I hated my husband. I hated my life. I, I had no friends. I remember one time my husband got sick. He had, uh, I don't know, a flu or something, but he had a really, really high fever and was delirious. He was laying on the couch in the living room. It was a very cold, rainy night. We lived on a second-floor apartment. He was very sick and, as I said, delirious with his fever, and I, I thought he should be, I should take him to the hospital, but I knew that I could not get him down the stairs in, in this condition that he was in, and there was not a single person I could think of to call who could come help me, not one single person. And uh, I remember I thought, okay, when I was a kid and I had a fever, my mother would get cold cloths and put them on my forehead, so I can do that. So I got a little bucket of cold water and a washcloth, and I put it on his forehead, and I kept, you know, changing it every few minutes. And then I thought, oh, I need a drink. And so I got a drink, and then the next thing I remember is waking up in the morning, and I was uh, in my chair across the room from the couch, and my glass was overturned in my lap, and... And I, that moment, you know, when you, before you open your eyes, when you remember what was going on, I thought, oh, my God, he could be dead. He could have died in the night, and I wouldn't have even known it because I passed out. 
he was not dead. He had his fever had broken sometime during the night, and he he was better that morning. But but you know it frightened me, and yet I did nothing. I just kept drinking. I don't know how long it was, you know, um, from then until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I you know things just got worse. And one day or one night, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I was drunk when I called. I don't know what triggered the notion that particular night above any other night to call, but I called that night, and a real nice man answered the phone and asked me if I was having a problem with alcohol. I said that I was, and I started to cry, and uh, he, he told me a lot about himself. We wanted to send some women to my house, and I said, no, no, I don't think I'm that bad. And um, <laughs> He seemed to understand, and he told me where our meeting was the next night and asked me if I thought I could not take a drink the next day and go to that meeting, and I said yes. Now, I doubt very much I cannot take a drink tomorrow. I drink every day, but yes is clearly the right answer, so you bet. The next day I came to, and I remembered making the call, and I found the piece of paper where I'd uh, written the address down. Now, in the light of day, I thought I'd been a little premature. I was 30 years old. I'm almost certain that's too young to be an alcoholic, and... uh, but I couldn't get it out of my mind I, all day long. It was just right there. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I heard myself say to my husband at the dinner table that night, I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said something really loving to me, like, yeah, whatever, and I <laughs> went off to the track. And I remember I dressed with some care. Uh, you know, I always like to be dressed appropriately wherever I go. Now, I've never been to AAA, so I'm not sure how that would be. And so it's kind of a dilemma. I, I don't remember. I just remember when I left the bedroom, there was this pile of clothes, women understand this, there was a pile of clothes on the bed that I had tried and discarded as being not quite right. I'm assuming in the end, I don't remember what I was thinking, but I'm assuming that I decided to go for comfort because what I arrived in, and in fact what I wore for the first few months to meetings, was uh, baggy jeans, um, rubber thongs on my feet, and and a knit top that had no knit left in it, you know what I mean, just kind of hung there, it's really comfy. Um, Nobody ever said a word about how I was dressed, ever. Until one night, I was maybe three months sober, and I was sort of running late, and I didn't have time to put my meeting clothes on. And I went to the meeting dressed in a pantsuit, a nice pantsuit that I was wearing that day, which is a very soft, uh, sort of a rose color. And I think that every single one of the 200 people in that meeting individually said to me, my, you look pretty tonight. (laughs) And I started dressing better after that when I went to meetings. But anyway, to go back to this first meeting, it was a meeting of about two, maybe 300 people, and uh, it might as well have been 30,000 people. It was just overwhelming. I thought there's no way I can go in that room, but somehow I did. And uh, a man was standing at the door, and he put out his hand and said, hello, my name is Clint. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that's the most important thing anybody ever does in a meeting right there. Uh, It made me feel welcome. And um, I I, I was not to know that he was to become one of my dearest friends today. I mean, I just was so terrified that night. I went in the room, and um, it was was an 8.30 meeting, so of course I got there at 8.28, because I know I cannot talk to you sober. I'd have to have a drink if I'm actually going to talk to you. So, And I didn't drink that day, but I needed a drink. By 8.28, I needed a drink pretty bad. I went in the back of the room, and uh, of course, because that's where newcomers go, and um, I was standing sort of behind a pillar. Now it's 829. I'm sick. I'm shaking. I'm in these terrible clothes. Um, I'm about to cry. I'm sweating a lot, which was this sort of side effect of drinking that I had. And a man came up and asked me if I was new, and I thought, how did he know that? <laughs> and uh, knowledge that I was, and, and uh, 
it seemed like that. There's about 50 women coming at me, and they're all writing their number numbers on little scraps of paper and um, telling me to call them anytime and got me a big book, whatever that is, and, and I found me a seat, and, and the meeting started. It was a speaker meeting, and the speaker that night was a man by the name of Norm Alpe. And um, I... I heard him. I, I won't tell you my life changed that night, but I, I identified. We actually drank in one of the same places um, many years apart. He was an older, much older man than I. Uh, but, but I identified. Um, I believed him. I believed that he drank the way I drank. I believed that he was sober, and I believed that he was living this happy, joyous life. You could see it. You could feel it when he was talking. Um, I think if you had pinned me down that night, I might have said, Maybe if I do whatever that guy's doing, I can stay sober. But I know I'm never going to feel the way he feels. You can't get from where I am to there. It's impossible. But what I got, of course, that night was hope. I, the minute the Lord's Prayer was over and they dropped my hands, I was out the door. Again, I am like stark raving sober. There is no way I can chat with you after the meeting. So I went home. And I stayed sober for a week, six days I stayed sober. I, I, uh, and I remember every day thinking, wow, it really works. This is great. Uh, I had heard you say go to a lot of meetings, and I thought, well, I'll go every Saturday night. That sounded like kind of a lot. Um, Friday, I was drunk. Now, six days I didn't drink, but Friday I was drunk. And so I went back to the meeting Saturday night, and I raised my hand for being under a week of sobriety and got some more phone numbers. And one of these ladies said, you know, you might want to actually call one of us, which, of course, I hadn't done. What would I say to you? I mean, I just can't even imagine. Uh, I actually uh, drank a couple more times that week and called that woman drunk. And uh, she said, you might want to get a sponsor. You don't seem to be doing too well on your own, and most of us have found sponsors to be pretty helpful. I had no idea what a sponsor was, but she seemed to think it was important. So I said, well, all right, fine. How do I do that? And she sort of lit up and said, well, I'll be your sponsor. And uh, I should have known, you know. So she said, meet me tomorrow night and uh, bring your big book, and we'll talk about it. Uh, tomorrow night was a Thursday. That's not meeting night. But... Um, <laughs> I sort of sensed that I shouldn't say that to her, you know. So I, I went down there the next night, and I took my big book. And the first thing she did is she handed me uh, she, she handed me my big book, opened it to the front cover, and told me to write that day's date in there. I wrote that date in there, and she said, that is your sobriety date. I thought, oh, I shouldn't have done this in ink. I don't think that's going to be my sobriety date. I'm very happy to report that that is my sobriety date, August 28, 1975. The next thing she did is she took the meeting directory, you know, that lists all the meetings in the area. And she circled the meeting for every night of the week. I said, excuse me, I cannot do that. Um, I'm a married woman. And she said, she was so sweet to me that night. That night, did you catch that? Um, she said something like, well, perhaps you can do it on less. But I'm afraid if you want me as your sponsor, this is what I would expect you to do. She said something like, I assume if you want me to be your sponsor, it's because you want what I have. If you want what I have, I only know one way to get it, and that's to do what I do. She said, I will never ask you to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous that I haven't done. But if you want me to be your sponsor, this is what you're going to have to do. For me, I believe the miracle happened in the next second because I agreed to do it. If you're new, it's important for you to hear that I didn't agree happily. And I didn't do it happily. But I did it, and that's why I'm standing here tonight. Um, the really, really good news about this program is your attitude doesn't matter one little bit. In fact, we expect that you have a bad attitude, really. I mean, <laughs> we would be surprised if you didn't. And so 
What's what's really great is you just take these actions and your attitude's going to change. You know, and when you're brand new, you just got to take it on blind faith, and it's hard. You know, it's really hard. I felt so sorry for myself. I thought I had the saddest life of anybody who ever came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My husband and I started fighting. Now, I don't want to imply that AA was ruining my marriage. I had a terrible marriage. But now we have a new topic that we're arguing about. We are arguing about Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, he thought I was coming here to meet men. Look, I wanted to be sober, but there were men here. And um, I, some of you looked good to me. Uh, none of you appeared to be interested in me, which hurt my feelings quite a bit. And it also really annoyed me that my husband was accusing me of something that I was not actually doing at that moment. And so we fought about AA pretty much every night. Um, every night we'd have dinner, we'd have the fight. I'd get in the car sobbing hysterically from the fight. Uh, I had my sponsor tell me I had to get to every meeting an hour early, 60 minutes, not 55 minutes, 60 minutes early. I'd get in the car, I'd be sobbing hysterically, driving to the meeting, and I'd think, you can have it. If this is sobriety, man, I can't, I might as well be drunk. This is, my life is so terrible. I'll go to your damn meeting tonight because I'm already out of the house tonight, but this is the last one I'm going to. I'd get to the meeting. She, always, she had me um, have early commitments at all my meetings, like cookies or coffee or, you know, something that, setting up chairs. And so I'd get to the meeting 60 minutes early, and I'd um, slam the cookies around in the kitchen or whatever my job was. And then my next instruction was when I finished my commitment was to come back in the main room and just shake hands with people as they got there, introduce myself, uh, ask them how they were as though I cared. <laughs> so here's what i do. Hi, my name is Pat, and you'd give me your name, and, and I'd say, I have no social skills, you know, so I'd say, um, how long are you sober? And they'd say something ridiculous like three years or something. Nobody stays sober three years. I mean, please. And, and then they'd ask me, and I'd say 30 days, and, and then they'd say, how are you? And I thought they cared, so I'd tell them how I was, you know, with great dramatic sobs and, you know, oh, well, it's so sad, my husband, you know, it's, until their eyes would just glaze over and they'd wander off and just go on to the next person. That's what I did for an hour every night. <laughs> People were so kind to me. I, I don't know. I, I sponsor a couple of girls like that right now, and I, I'll tell you, I don't know how those how people were so nice to me. I, I have not that patience. Um, mercifully, eventually, the meeting would start. I went to a lot of speaker meetings, um, which was great, because I nothing's expected of me when a speaker is up here talking. I could just hear it. You know, in discussion meetings, I was kind of useless, because the discussion's coming around the room this way towards me, and I don't hear what any of these people are sharing, because I'm thinking, of course, about what I'm going to share when it's my turn. Now it's my turn. I say something. Now it's going this way, and I'm thinking, God, that was stupid. Why did I say that? So I don't hear any of these people either. In a speaker meeting, I was freed from myself for 45 minutes or an hour, and it was great relief. Um, I always felt a little bit better by the time I, I went home from the meeting. I, it's not like anything magic happened, but it always would just get me through another day, another fight to another meeting. Um, my sponsor had me just do terrible things that made me. She, I remember one year she told me I had to pick up these two old women, Claire and Zelda, and bring them to the meeting on, I guess it was Tuesday nights then. And um, To say that I didn't like Claire and Zelda would be to understate it considerably. Uh, they, of course, you know, didn't live anywhere conveniently to where I lived. And so I had to, and I couldn't cut into that hour 
that 60 minutes. I had to go early so I could get them and still get to the meeting an hour early. Every every week I'd call my sponsor that afternoon with something like, well, you know, it's kind of busy here at work. I may have to work late. I'm not sure about picking up Claire and Zelda. And she'd say, well, you better have a sandwich at your desk then because you're not going to have time for dinner. <laughs> so off I'd go to get Claire and Zelda, and they'd get in the car, and they would be – now, I smoked then too, so this isn't an issue about smoking, but they both smoked, and they both had emphysema, so they had these, like, awful coughs. And they'd get in the car, and they'd fire up their cigarettes, and then they'd start that terrible coughing. And the truth of the matter is I was afraid that somebody was going to die in my car. <laughs> and I'd think about it all the way to the meeting, and I'd think, well, I'll just pull up on the lawn, and I'll come in and get the three biggest guys and say, get them out of my car, you know. <laughs> But going home, of course, there's, you know, taking them home after the meeting, there's nobody, anyway. So I'd get to the meeting, we'd go in the meeting, and the minute we hit the meeting door, I never spoke to them again. It's like they're dead or not even in the room. And I'm talking to my friend, now the meeting's over, and I see them, you know, sort of, we've all thanked the speaker or whatever, and I see them standing by the door waiting for me, and I deliberately go over here and start a new conversation. You know, I was so mean-spirited, just so mean-spirited. I did not like, do you get that I didn't like them? And so one night I uh, went to pick them up, and Zelda was sick, and so it was just Claire and me, and we went to the meeting, and the next day I was at work, and I, I thought, gee, I wonder if Zelda's okay, and I called her. I can't believe I got, I hate this woman, what do I care if she's sick? But I called her up to see if she was okay, and you know, I believe that that was the beginning of me learning how to be a friend. I didn't know that, you know? I didn't know why my sponsor had me doing this, picking these women up, but you know, I learned, gradually learned to care about somebody besides myself. I think of sponsor direction is having this sort of ripple effect. You know, you get a, if you're like me, you get a sponsored direction, they say, do this today. You want to get some kind of really major results by tomorrow afternoon, you know. Uh, and it just doesn't have to work that way for me. I, I get a direction from my sponsor when I'm a month sober or a year or 10 years or 30 years, whatever it is, and I incorporate that action into my life. And somewhere down the road that I cannot possibly see at this moment, that my sponsor can't even possibly see, that... Um, action is going to uh, benefit my life in some way. And, and that's been true for me over and over and over again. One of the things my sponsor had me do uh, very early on was that every meeting I went to was to ask three women for their phone numbers and, that I didn't already have. And then the next day, in addition to calling her, I was to call these three new phone numbers that I'd gotten. And, boy, I struggled with that. I mean, I thought my fear was when I called you that you wouldn't know who I was. So I'd dial you and I'd sweat and think about it and agonize over it and sit by the phone and finally dial your number, take one giant breath, you'd answer, and in one giant exhale, I'd say something like, hi, my name is Pat, I have long brown hair and glasses, I met you at the meeting last night, I'm new. My sponsor told me I had to call three people every day and you're one, so how are you anyway? <laughs> now, I don't know if anybody ever understood a word I said, but they all got that I was new. And <laughs> They all were kind. Everybody was kind to me. I especially am fond of the people who would say things that made me laugh. Marianne Kay, who is my dear friend to this day, made me was one of the first people that I remember could actually made me laugh out loud. Um, and, and what a blessing that was because I was not laughing much in those days. And so I won't say I absolutely called three every day, but I did a lot. And that was one of those directions I didn't get. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? You know, I never got particularly comfortable. I'll tell you why my sponsor had me doing that and why it would be a good idea for you to do it if you're new. When, uh, when I was three years sober, uh, my, my then husband was uh, in the hospital dying of cancer. And uh, he had been sick for a year and a half hard year and a half, but the best year and a half of our marriage because you taught me how to make amends to him. 
And, uh, and so things were, between us, good. He was obviously ill and dying. That was bad. But, but um, I was at the hospital this day, and it was not a day different than any of the other days that he'd been sick. It was just a harder day for me. And I, I remember sitting outside the intensive care waiting room thinking, I can't do this. I just, it's not that I wanted to go get drunk, but I, I just, I don't know, wanted to run away from my life, I guess is the only way I can think to express it. And the thought ran through my head, it might be a good idea to call somebody like my sponsor. And so I stepped into this phone booth there and I called my sponsor and she wasn't home. This was before anybody, I don't think voicemail had been invented. I didn't know anybody who had an answering machine. I mean, nobody did. And so the phone just rang and eventually I hung up and the dime came back, which shows you how long ago it was. (laughs) And without even really thinking about it, I put the dime back in, got my little phone book out that I carry of, you know, numbers and called somebody else. Uh, I called 11 people that day before somebody answered the phone. Never once did it did the thought come to me that oh screw it you know I just kept putting the thing back in. God it's funny we were talking about that about Bill Wilson standing in that church lobby you know just made me think of that um, I just kept dialing in until somebody answered now the person who answered didn't have any magic anything for me what mattered is that I was talking to another sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous it somehow got my life my perspective on life um, back in, in place a little bit, and I was able to go on. Uh, I've, you know, that has come back to save me time and time and time again. Uh, my, my husband did indeed pass away, and um, I went down to this little chapel and made some funeral arrangements, and a couple hundred people from Alcoholics Anonymous took the day off from work and came to that funeral. They didn't know him, you know. They didn't know him, but they came that day because they knew that I... Uh, that I would need them, which of course I did. And what my sponsor had promised me had happened by making amends to him. I knew that day that um, that uh, I was uh, clean and, and right about my relationship with him. I uh, I was sad that obviously that day, but I but I knew that there was nothing. Oh, I wish I would have said or done or if only you know I had done all of that. And I'm so grateful that I stayed in that marriage when all of my best judgments suggested I should leave. I'm glad that I listened to my sponsor who insisted that I stay there and make those amends. Um, you know the thing about those phone calls. Um, I'm married to Vince today. For we're married for 26 years. It didn't happen quite that fast after my late husband passed away, uh, but. Um, I'm thinking, I'm on a train of thought here, so you just got to bear with me. Thinking about the phone calls right now. Um, uh, three, three years ago, Vince had colon cancer and was in the hospital, and he was really, really sick. I was at the City of Hope one day, and I, and I really thought, you know, he's not going to ever come out of this hospital. I really believe that. And I thought I need to call somebody. So I went out in the courtyard where my cell phone would work and I called my friend Rita. And I, her voicemail picked up and I said, hi, it's Pat Yo," And I burst into tears. If I hadn't have said my name, I would have hung up. But I, I had identified myself, so now I feel obliged to try to stay on here and leave some kind of a coherent message. But I was incapable. I just was choking and crying. And Karen, she just told me later this call just made her sob. Anyway, I finally just hung up. I went back in the room with Vince and about 20 minutes later I thought i got to go call Rita again and let her know that I haven't killed myself. And so I, I went back out to the courtyard and I called and I got her voicemail again and I said, I just want to let you know to please disregard my prior message and I'm feeling much better now. Thank you very much. And I tell you that because it didn't matter. This is the point of the story. It did not matter that Rita wasn't home. What mattered is that I picked up the phone and called another sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
it changed how I was able to deal with that day by me making that, taking that action and reaching out to anybody, Rita, that day. Um, it, it made my, it made me be okay uh, for that day. So that's why my sponsor had me calling three people every day when I was new. So that when the day would come, which it will for everybody, when you absolutely positively must be talking to another sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll do it without even really thinking about it. And I'm real glad she taught me that. Um, you know, my uh, biggest, um, I really will shut up soon. Um, my biggest uh, problem and biggest secret when I got sober was my relationship with my stepfather. Um, I really hated him, and I, and I had good reason to. And uh, I, I didn't see it as a problem. I didn't live in that house. Once I moved out of the house, the things obviously that were happening weren't happening anymore. And so I didn't see it as a problem for today, so to speak. I mean, that's what happened to me then. Now I'm gone. Everything's fine. Except the longer I was sober, um, the more I thought about it and the more I hated him. And then it seemed like, I don't know if this happens to you, I bet it does. It seemed like every meeting I went to, the speaker would lean right into the microphone, stare directly at me, and say something like, resentments kill alcoholics, particularly justifiable resentments. And i just sit in my chair sweating and think, okay, I resent them, it's justifiable, but um, you know, I don't know what to do with this. And I, uh, I let way more time pass by than one needs to, but I, I guess you're ready when you're ready. I finally um, talked to my sponsor about it, and she said, um, I think you need to make amends to him. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Perhaps you've forgotten. Uh, he, I mean, I was a kid here. He was clearly the bad guy in this relationship. I, you know, you're wrong. And she said, well, Pat, you uh, have made amends and still, I'm still making those amends today to your mother for the grief and the anguish and the worry that you've caused your mother behind your drinking. Um, your stepfather was living at the house, in that house with your mother at the same time you were causing her all that grief. Why don't you just sort of take that same little list of things and, and start there to make amends to him? Now, there's a problem with this. I love my mother. I was sorry when I was doing it to her that, that I was causing her all that trouble, and I certainly was sorry when I got sober. I am sorry to this day that I caused my mother all that grief and anguish and worry. I hate my stepfather. What do I care if he was a little bit worried? You, you see the problem here? But... Again, uh, it seemed like the longer I stayed sober, the bigger it got in my head, and so I finally um, became willing. And I drove out to their house, and they lived about 50 miles away at the time, and I drove out to their house one day, and I had this little chat with him, and I, it was pretty brief. I just said something like, you know, I know that I caused a lot of trouble in this house when I was a teenager, and with my drinking and all of that, and I know that there were many sleepless nights, and blah, 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 and you know, I'm really sorry. I know I can't change any of that that happened, but I'm going to try to be a better stepdaughter to you from now on. Now, I left. Pretty much, pretty much spit these words out and left because I knew if I hung around for more of this conversation, we were going to wander off into discussing his shortcomings. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is very, very clear that that's not our job. And I really got that if I did that, I was going to have to do this all over again. So... <laughs> So I said what I had to say, and I left. And I was driving home, and I thought, these steps don't work. I've made amends, and I hate them as much as I ever did. Well, I hadn't actually made amends. What I had done is I'd made the announcement that an amend was coming. You know, the amend isn't saying I'm sorry. The amend is, in fact, being a better stepdaughter. Oh, my God, what a horrible idea. I mean, I really, I honest to God didn't think I could do it. Uh, I really, really depended on my sponsor and, and other women in Alcoholics Anonymous. I started listen, watching people, how they treated their parents, and 
and trying to emulate some of that. Um, the first thing I did when I called my mother every week, which I was doing then, um, if he answered the phone, instead of saying, hi, let me talk to mom, I would say, hi, how are you? And then maybe chat with him about something. And I really would have to think about topics of conversation before I dialed the phone. If I'd Generic topics, you know what I mean? If I'd seen a movie, that was a really good topic. Uh, I remember the Olympics were in Los Angeles around this time, and um, that was a good topic. You know, So I would say, hi, how are you? And he'd respond, and then I'd say, oh, I saw this great movie last night, and I'd, you know, a little something about the movie, and now I'm just drenched in sweat. I'm so uncomfortable. And, if, and then finally talked to Mom. And, and, uh, and then um, Christmas was coming up, and somebody said, you know, Pat, um, a kind and loving daughter would not just pick up any tie or shirt or something and have the store wrap it. A, a, a kind and loving daughter might actually put a little thought into a gift. And so... I remember sitting on my couch that afternoon um, and asking God to help me. That He actually, even if you liked him, was one of those people who's just hard to buy for. You know, some people just, like, don't have hobbies, don't, you know. And, and so I sat on the couch, and I, I said, okay, God, you're going to have to help me out here because I really have no idea what to do for this man. And, um, and I sat on the couch there and waited for inspiration to strike, and nothing happened. And I thought, uh, maybe... Just maybe the action for me is to go to a store where stuff is. And uh, so I went down to a mall, and I was walking around thinking about it. And I went into this needlepoint shop, and there was this thing to needlepoint and frame and hang on the wall, a little saying about fathers and daughters. Just an awful little saying. I just, oh, I thought, I cannot, oh, I cannot possibly do that. It just, like, followed me around the shop, honest to God. It just uh, So I bought the damn thing, and I did it. You know, needlepoint takes a long time. I did my nicest work. I got it framed nicely. I uh, t- took it over there. I gave it to him for Christmas, and when he opened it up, there was just a moment, just a moment where he had a, I could see he had a little tear in the corner of his eye. It was a, a powerful moment for me. I knew just here and gone that quick that, I was on the right track here in making these amends. I knew that somehow, if I kept trying to do this, that God was going to make this resentment resentment bearable enough that I would not have to pick up a drink over it. I knew it. Again, the feeling was just here and gone so quick, but that that instant, boy, it held me a long time. It really did. Um, I remember at at the the next event, the next gift-giving event, uh, Vince and I had been in Yosemite, and Yosemite is that when my when my stepfather married my mother, Yosemite camping in Yosemite was the first vacation that we all went on, and this was like before all the trouble began, and uh, it was a great vacation. It was like the greatest vacation we'd ever had, and I, I still to this day remember, you know, hiking up to Vernal Falls and laughing and just having this great time. And so I bought they have an Ansel Adams studio there, and I bought a, a, a picture of Vernal Falls. And I uh, wrote on the card essentially what I just said to you, that this was like the greatest trip, blah, blah, blah. And I gave that to him, and uh, he loved it. He immediately hung it up, you know, in a prominent place in the house. And I thought, that that was good. About six or seven months after that, I was at their house one day, and I happened to sit in his chair. And there on the table, you know, where his glasses and this stuff were, was that card where I would written that message. And it was completely dog-eared. He had obviously picked that card up and read it hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Again, you know, the moment keeps you going. It just keeps you going. Uh, he actually um, committed suicide about, oh, God, it's over 10 years now, I guess. Um, I, I went down to see him. He was not conscious. 
I sat by his bed and I said a prayer, but there was never a moment where I wished that he'd wake up so I could say anything because I knew, again, I totally made my amends to this man. I was I'm so glad that I did all those things that I didn't want to do. I'm so free of that. You know, I'm free of it. Um, what a gift. Uh, if you're new, um, this all seems so serious somehow. Um, it is serious. Uh, but but on, the, on the other hand, we absolutely insist on enjoying life, and I do. Um, Vince and I got married, um, I think I said 26 years ago, and we, we have... Well, other than heart attacks and cancer and financial problems, we've had a really great <laughs> life together. <laughs> you know, of all the troubles that we've had, they've never been with each other. And that, what a gift that is. We are not either one of us people who are um, like in a marriage for the long haul. You know what I mean? We're kind of short-termers, and, and yet here we are 26 years later. Um, I love him more today than I did the day I married him, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, if you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope that, uh, it, you know, this is really a great weekend to be here. Um, go to all the meetings. Listen to all the speakers. Um, immerse yourself in this. You know, it, it's the most um, wonderful thing that, that's ever going to happen to you. I know you don't feel that way right now. Believe me, I know it. And actually, everybody in this room knows it. Everybody in this room has felt exactly the way you're feeling right now. Uh, if you're new, I would recommend you do three things. I recommend you get a sponsor uh, before you leave this room, and certainly before you leave this weekend. And, um, you know, a sponsor is somebody who's going to walk you through this and, and show you the way and lead by example and, and love you and care for you. And the second thing I recommend you do is get a home group, a place where you are the person who throws the cookies around in the kitchen or whatever it is that you do. And, and the third thing I recommend you do is make a friend, um, somebody around your own length of sobriety you can hang out with and talk to. And, um, you know, when you're new, it's nice to hear how stuff is going to sound out loud, you know, before you call your sponsor with it. <laughs> you might want to tweak the wording a little then before you, you know. And I used to call my friend Betty. Betty knew everything about me. We, you know, I'd call her three or four times a day. I'd tell her something, and she'd say, it's either something I'm thinking about doing or something I've already done, which isn't so good. And, and sometimes she'd say what I hope, which is, oh, yeah, that sounds cool. But mostly she'd say, oh, God, you better call your sponsor with that. And, and that's a really good kind of friend to be. I hope you find a friend like that. Um, when She was sober three days less than me. When we were 10 years sober, she went out. The last time I saw her was when I was 25 years sober. She brought me a little gift, and shortly after that, she went to prison. Um, so it's not like she's been having a great life since she left Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was new, I remember thinking, boy, if I were as pretty as Betty and as smart as Betty, my life would be perfect. I am not a more deserving person than Betty. I am not a better person than Betty. As near as I can tell, the only thing that I've done different is I've tried to do everything that's asked of me in Alco Alcoholics Anonymous, whether I wanted to or not. In fact, especially when I don't want to. Uh, I, it, it is the only, as I can see, difference between why she is where she is and I am where I am. If you're new, I hope that you grab onto this thing. I hope that you find what I and most of the other people in this room have found. This is a fabulous way to live, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs>